Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from a newly refurbished, freshly carpeted podcast bunker in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California. Should have taken a deeper breath before that one. Boasting a partially obstructed view of the world famous Hollywood sign. This is the Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, once again, the lead singer of Sugar Ray and three-time champion of Rock and Roll Jeopardy. Hello, and welcome back, our dear, dear, always missed, always happy to see him again friend, Mark McGrath. Michael Tolley, always a pleasure to be here. Always great to see you. And uh, just, you know, talking about music that nobody cares about and finding out that so many people care about it later in the social media world. I know. It's really... It's really rewarding, you know, so it's a joy to be talking to you, Tully. Likewise. It's so nice, this uh, atmosphere that we live in now, where it's it's the perpetual present for for all bands. Time was, there was only so much shelf space down at Sam Goody. And if your record didn't do a certain amount, if you were not one, if you weren't Thriller, if you weren't Back in Black, I don't know what it was, a year, two years, three years, unless your new album was a hit, uh, you would be literally forgotten, and and now all of this stuff lives on, and uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why it remains in the consciousness of the people that we're talking to here, because they're still, if you choose to still live in 19, let's say, 82, when it comes to music, <laughs> it's Sam Goody is still freshly stocked on Spotify, so to speak, Absolutely. you know? Absolutely. And also, like, you know, we've talked about this. The 90s was kind of the last decade. Yeah. So we're also looking back at a at a tradition, a business model that is gone. How we used to receive music uh, pre-2000, let's say. I mean, yes, the record industry you know, limped its way into probably today. It's still around, but not really as viable as it was. It was the only game in town back in the day. So I believe there's a lot of nostalgia attached to that. And we always look back at the past with rose-tinted glasses and forget how horrible those decades actually were. In, real oh, in case anyone has forgotten, we're going to find out right off the bat when we, with the first song that we're going to listen to today. I, I, I can't say, in, I can't say enjoy. It's hard to believe anybody enjoyed it even at the time. So it's been a minute since we took a look back at new music releases from uh, in this, we're up to 1982 this month in 1982. The last we did was November and we touched, we touched on this. Then we all saw this coming. It was going to be a fallow period. There's all of those big releases leading up to Christmas. And I guess things leading up to, uh, to summer and much like the movie industry is a little bit more of a 12 month thing nowadays, assuming we still have a a movie industry, (laughs) a movie theater industry, but they typically had their, their dump season of January. January and February. Um, I was expecting, because we were all blown away month after month with how many remarkable things were being released on a monthly basis uh, back through 81 and, and through the beginning of, of 82. I knew there was going to be a little bit of a drop off, but you would think that at least we're going to cover three months worth of new releases from uh, the end of 81 and the beginning of 82. You would think three months is, three months put together would add up to one decent month from the preceding year, and you would be wrong. Wow. Yeah. That, that blows me away because, like, the, the track history we had with, like you said, the I months know. leading up, not only great music, but, like, 
genre-defining albums, yeah. career-defining albums, albums that we talk about with relevancy today. And, yeah. and every other one you played was that, Tully. You know, know, for every Manhattan transfer, there was like, you know, back in black, you know? So uh, that, that does shock me that you have to search to find something that had any sort of teeth uh, in this time period. Well, it all depends on how important... What you call teeth? <laughs> uh, and, and how important you consider Peter Cetera's solo debut. Yeah, you exactly. Know? I will, I'll, I'll, I'll spare you that. If you need to know the sound of Peter Cetera going hair metal, kind of survivor brand... Well, I think we all want to hear it. Okay, I mean, all right. You all cannot right. tease us like that, Tully. I mean, you know. And mind you, he's still in Chicago then. He didn't quit Chicago. He's still part of it. He did not quit Chicago. I think he... Um, there were there were there was a a two album cycle overlap of him being um, a solo artist and a member of Chicago two for each before he finally made the leap to Karate Kid to glory. Yeah, the David Foster years yes. are what ruined Peter, or took Peter Cetera away from Chicago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so so you you wanted it, you got it, it. You wanted Peter Cetera. You got Peter Cetera. Here is off of his self-titled album, titled album, released in December of 1981, the single Living in the Limelight. I think Frank Stallone might have gotten a co-writing credit on that, <laughs> just just on principle. That or Billy Squire was definitely in the room somewhere. Yeah, right. My, I wonder who produced that. Because You know what's weird? Here's a man with such a beautiful vo voice that usually sings in a falsetto, mm -hmm. afraid to add a grit to his voice. Like, in the middle of the night. <laughs> like, he was afraid to go, in the middle of the night. You know, you yeah. want to damage that beautiful falsetto. If I can hear him holding back. You know, it's very strange to hear that. And you know what, dude? Not as bad as I thought it was going to be. Okay. I mean, I'm not, I guess my irony sense is like really very high right now and wants to love this, but yeah. not as terrible as I thought it was going to be. It's, it's perfectly listenable. It's just that um, uh, for most artists, the struggle is to come up with an identity, a brand, and uh, Peter Cetera had one. And decided yeah. to to run away. I mean, you listen to I, I go like two songs deep on on Chicago, but does anybody know what time it is? It's such an incredible song. You listen to there's 15 instruments and eight singers, and you go, who's who's that guy in there in the yeah. chorus? You can't deny his thing, and yet he denied his thing. Running scared from his, I guess, going from the the jazz prog fusion stuff that could still be on the radio in the 60s and 70s and then he was kind of tailor-made for yacht rock i guess going into the 80s he may have looked at the tea leaves and said it's either billy squire or go home well i think you're right i mean basically he's four years away from if you leave me now yeah you leave me now I mean, that's his lead vocal which one of those beautiful yeah. vocals of all time you know Woo you know it's such <laughs> a beautiful piece of music and then he goes to this like sort of middle of the road, like anybody can do it, rock guy. Yeah. But again, I think he's like, like you said, like he was trying to get out of that Chicago bubble, which by the way, the Chicago bubble is vast and huge. I find it hard to believe he couldn't get his ideas heard in a band that was so varied, but it is what it is. 
And I'm, I'm, you know, dude, I wonder who co-wrote that song with him and produced it. I mean, I, I'm probably the only guy that does, but I do. He produced the album himself. There was a co-producer credit for a man by Jim Boyer who does not warrant a Wikipedia entry of his own. And mm-hmm. I believe he wrote this song. He solely huh. wrote the song. Yeah, he had some some co-writing credits from Carl Wilson of the Beach Boys, a friend of his. But I don't think uh, I think he that that was that was pure undiluted satira. Yeah, probably a guy that was in a band that was like a, a studio guy or a yeah. guy who was a traveling musician. He gave him a shot. My favorite thing about Peter Cetera is when he was doing the Karate Kid years. Yeah, he wears a Bauhaus shirt <laughs> in the video. That'll always be my favorite thing about Pete. To offset his like, hey, if you don't like my hot AC thing, I know about Bauhaus. You know what I mean? It's yes. like, it was really funny. That I've definitely great. heard of them, and my nephews tell me they're great. Exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Right, right, right. Okay, so just to set the tone, I love to find one of these just to go here. The baseline for some of the more credible things that are to follow Here's the kind of shit that not only flew, but flourished. It's very, very hard. Some of the release dates are lost on some of these things. A lot of things just get um, resigned to the the websites that keep track of these sorts of things as being, this came out on January 1 of this year. And I think a lot of times Mm -hmm. that's a placeholder for, it definitely came out that year. We're not really sure when, and nobody cares enough to figure it out. I am pretty sure this smash hit song was written and recorded, you're going to want a quick turnaround on something like this in December of 1981. I actually feel like the game sound effects hold up rather well. Well, you know what? When you look forward to this game sound effects in a song, <laughs> that is a problem with your song. And you're totally right. I mean, that's 12 bar blues. That was a I was a top ten hit. Oh yeah. I do believe. Pat oh, hell yeah. Who who was the artist on that? Tony? Buckner and Buckner and Garcia had been trying their hand at novelty songs for some time. I did a whole other show with uh, Tony Thaxon about novelty songs. I know more than I care to know about Pac-Man. That was Dr. De- they were Dr. Demento uh, regulars, weren't they? Buckner and Garcia. That sounds about yeah, right. That sounds yeah. about right. That, that one did, um, that hit number nine on the Billboard Hot 100. We're unable to uh, catch lightning in a bottle twice with the follow-up single, Do the Donkey Kong. Yeah, the legs, Pac-Man Feverhead. Yeah, I tell you what, though, dude, to have a top ten song, I know. that's so hard to do. Yeah, but you're right, they caught a wave. Do we know when Pac-Man came out? Like what? What? What year did Pac-Man like really explode? Was it '81? Was it like the summer of '81? Pac-Man. Because well, that would have a Pac- lot to do with what how that song moved. Oh, absolutely, you know I mean? positively. Game development began in early 1979. Uh, it seems like it came out in 1980, and this so song it probably was, was probably it was completely in every pizzeria at this time for sure. It was, oh oh my goodness! It was so fast. It was released in Japan. It's a Japanese game. Was released in May of 1980 in Japan. Went worldwide in December of 1980. Twelve months later, you could have a top ten hit with that piece of crap. That's incredible. Yeah. That just shows you 
how big. I mean, look, the game is still huge. Still, yeah. still, you know, it's still around today. And it just shows you how, you know, you, you call it, a, you know, a fever, but it truly was. I mean, it was. There, there was a feverish sensibilities around Pac-Man about that. Everybody's losing their mind. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, I had a bad case of Frogger thumb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Frogger, man, still gives me anxiety. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so there we go. So that's while that's on the uh, number nine on the charts, number nine in everyone's hearts. Uh, David Byrne of Talking Heads is off doing a solo thing, and of course he's going to make it as David Byrnesy as possible. Somebody wrote some modern dance thing, and he wrote the music musical accompaniment for that. But the end result um, ended up being. A fairly talking headsy kind of song, so much so that this song would be performed on the Talking Heads Stop Making Sense live album and live video, and I think he still performs it live to this day. Where are you on Talking Heads, David Byrne? Big fan, Talking okay. Heads. I love the Talking Heads. I, I love the Tom Tub Club, which became an offshoot of the Talking Heads. Yep. They, they have so much influence that we forget about. They're one of those bands that's never really talked about in terms of being so influential in the alternative world. You know what I'm saying? Oh, but I don't yeah. think they get, they, they are, they're in the conversation, but I think they should be almost the conversation for what he did for like taking New York, that, that New York kind of punk rock that was happening and then, you know, getting it through disco, but like, it was just very cerebral and smart, but they also could craft a really nifty pop song. You know, they were yeah. very smart, too smart for their own good, but they also like were great pop songwriters. Much like, they kind of like were our version of XTC. Who we will get to today, by the way. You know, I think maybe the the challenge of contextualizing the Talking Heads is they're a very, very influential band, but most very, very influential bands spawn a lot of very obvious imitators. And I think a lot of bands took things from the Talking Heads, took attitude from the Talking Heads, but if I say name a band that sounds exactly like talking heads i don't know i can hear some talking heads in arcade fire but not exactly yeah and that's a long way to go <laughs> it's a bit of a layoff yeah that was 30 years later <laughs> you know what i mean so i i think that's always an amazing thing that makes a band so unique you know queen right queen is such a great band right you don't hear a lot of people say yeah they sound like queen you know and, and uh i just watched that i just like i just watched that sparks documentary i don't know bro well, you know, you're right. You're yeah. right. You, but but you know, you know what's crazy? Sparks almost came before Queen. I know. Almost at the same time. That's I know. just so crazy. No, but you're definitely right about that. But then, how many parents you hear that sound like Sparks? You know, and so it's it's really yeah. It's I, I just it, it's it's hard to find something unique in music, especially now. But uh, Queen was able to do it and talk to him the same way, like you said. They were doing a variety of things. They were experimenting with African tribal stuff. Yeah. They were doing hip hop stuff. They were doing punk rock. They were doing new wave. And they also come from the theater world. David Byrne was very theatrical and still is to this day. Oh, yeah. You know, so he, he really, his art isn't something he does on the weekend. His art is inside his heart. You know, it's what he is. You know who sounds like Sparks, who sound like Queen? System of a Down. Okay, I'm trying to I'm trying to grasp onto something. Oh, I mean they literally do Figaro, Figaro, like um But I, I think that's more of an, an ethnocentric thing as opposed to a, a, a ode to Sparks. Oh, I don't think that they necessarily sat down to, to crib Sparks, but when I think of some like I think I think System of a Down could cover this town ain't big enough for both of us. 
No, I, I, I agree. I agree. And they grew up in L.A. and had the K-Rock phenomenon, which I always talk about. Yeah, that's always right. Our I didn't. I thought and, I, I thought Sparks were from the U.K. too. I fell for it as well. Yeah, no, straight out of Glendale, man. That's right. Straight out of Glendale. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, they had the they, So, you know, at first I say no way. And then I hear you know, every band had the K-Rock phenomenon that yeah. they grew up. And so System of Down, our, my age, grew up right here. So now the Sparks comparison doesn't seem so far away. But again... Another band you don't hear a lot of people say they sound like System of a Down. Oh hell no, you know, no, so no, I, no, no. I think it all is kind of it's feeding itself. What our argument here is, you know, right, right, right. Shit, those guys could have been neighbors, System of a Down and Sparks. If everybody's from everybody's from Glendale, huh? I, I, right. It just it's wow. one big uh, you know one big create creative fest out here. But you know, K Rock will always be the thread. I, if we don't mention the K Rock phenomenon once in this, <laughs> in this podcast, we've done something wrong. I was know? thinking of you. I ate at Cantor's over the weekend, and we were talking about nice. Rodney Bingenheimer, who somehow ate every single meal of his entire life in this greasy spoon diner and weighed seventy five pounds. <laughs> and live to tell about it. You yeah, know? yeah, that's right. Uh, so David Byrne, he makes the the music for whatever dance show, New York, uh, pretentious art phenomenon thing um this came from well it's called the catherine wheel and here is a song from the music from the catherine wheel Probably a lot of days in there. <laughs> such, a strange, such a strange voice. It's like high, but it's low. I but know. it's like, uh, you know, it's weird. Good. You know, I, I, I don't know. You know, do you love that song? Hell do, no. Do you like that? It's pretty much unlistenable, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I would say. Yeah, so. I'm not trying to be. I'm trying to give it a, a real listen, and I just, I, I don't know. I, I, I it is. Is that not made for me, or is it made for just him? Like, I, sometimes I'm, I'm confused where the uh, the the you know the uh, commodity starts and the art ends, or like, why was that even put out? Like, who? What label? What label was it on? By the way. Okay, I'll tell you the answer to that. As I say, this this hit with people. Talking Heads performed that on subsequent tours. That was on Stop Making Sense. Apparently, yeah. that's in the movie somewhere. He still performs it live to this day. Produced by him, released on Sire. Yeah, I bet. He said, look, you, you want some talking heads, you can release this for sure, Sire, uh, Seymour Stein. Um, uh, and also, there's a band that became the Catherine Wheel, as yeah. uh, you probably heard of. Oh, sure. Yeah, I, I like the Catherine Wheel. Now, I wonder if that had anything to do with this, or what is the, was the Catherine Wheel a play, you say? Yeah, what is the, yeah, yeah, it was a play, but yeah, what is the Catherine Wheel? I assume, I have to assume that the band, the Catherine Wheel, took their name from this uh this david from david Byrne or from the the, the, the play this musical is, score like it's a dance project of twyla tharp which is like a name i think i feel like i've heard of before well it feels very english doesn't it twyla that's but one of those if like, you'd ask me to place that tyla, i am i thinking tyla from the dogs do more <laughs> i was thinking like like 1960s adam west batman villain actress it feels it like, feels very twiggy, like yeah, nice, Earth the Kid, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, right, exactly. right, right. So here's here's an interesting, fun wrinkle to that. So David Byrne's taking his little break from uh, Talking Heads, and he's making that album, but he's actually doing two projects 
simultaneously. I think he is literally by day making music for the Twyla Tharp uh, dance project and by night convening with the B-52s who he is producing. The B-52s started off as a, a live act and they worked up a bunch of material and they burned through all of that material over the course of their first two albums. And I think that's rock lobster and, and all that stuff. It comes time for album number three. They don't have any songs left. They're kind of getting on each other's nerves. And I don't know that they ever intended to be a big, serious rock band. Just success sort of found them and they decided that the, it was time for them to go go off to a, like the Chili Peppers to rent a house somewhere and live together. And I think what they learned from that is that the B-52s don't like living with one another. <laughs> Most bands find that out the hard way. <laughs> yeah, <me>. yeah. <laughs> and they, so they're supposed to make an album and it ends up being released as an EP because nobody is really satisfied with what they come up with. And um, had I asked you to blind taste test this song i think we could have been here all day until you were able to identify that this song was a single from the b-52s produced by david byrne Ladies and gentlemen, time to party. Say hello. <laughs> Say hello My to the B-52s. God. <laughs> Holy. I hear a lot of David Byrne. Yeah. I hear no B-52s. And the oh, my B-52s God. The B-52s are known for their incredible vocals. I know. So you're going to give me a five-minute groovy like <laughs> cocktail jam. And I'm waiting for the lyrics because I love the singers in the B-52s that much. Yeah. And then you gave me David Byrne's vocal through there. That's a David Byrne rough demo sung by the B-52s. And that's the good stuff. Yeah. You told me they got rid of the other stuff, right? Yeah, they had to, They couldn't release four of them. Yeah, that sounds like a, a B-52s like musical hostage video. Uh, yeah, boy, that's so well said. That is so, that sounds like sad B-52s, mm-hmm. you know, uh, <laughs> with a gun to the head saying, go. Yeah. And by the way, you're not even going to hear the song first. Just start singing. Yeah, you know, you're not you're just it's improv like freestyle off the dome. And again, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, reference the K Rock phenomenon because I've heard every B fifty two song in the world because of K Rock. Yeah, I have never a heard the song or b heard of this project. That's incredible. That's how hard they went to bury this stuff. The aptly named Deep Sleep. Wow. Yeah. Did that come out on Warner Brothers um, or IRS? Man, you're good. That was the Mesopotamia EP was released on Warner Brothers in the U.S. by Island Records elsewhere. Wow. Wow. You know, it's funny. Imagine, you know, just being Warner Brothers or Sire and getting these two records and going, I, I, I have to promote. Like the publicity yeah. company gets a copy of that. You know, and by the way, this is the 80s where things are like very poppy and, you know, I mean, yeah. three-minute hits and you got to go sell that to a radio station. 
You know, where, where, where's the lobster? Where's Planet Claire? Where's the fun? I know. I mean, where's the band? I know. know. Yeah, there's not enough Coke and hookers to get that airplay. No. No. That might be the biggest right turn I've ever heard from a band. I know. So I'm, I'm not even kidding you. I know. I, I don't. Also, where they were going after that, yeah. they did beat it, too. They're going, you know, they're going to Love Shack in about three or four or five years. You know, yeah. they're going to uh, so many great, so many great, so poppy and upbeat. I mean, that's just like, oh, that's just like opiate B-52. Yeah. I mean, because we're, we're kind of steamrolling our way through uh, popular music history, 80s and, and, and 90s here. Uh, and it's touching on a lot of topics that I have prepared for, uh, you know, I'm planning for us to talk, talk on specifically at some point in the future. And I definitely think there's a couple shows in bands that took stylistic right turns oh, yeah. to the point of unrecognizability. And uh, sure. I'm going to, I'm going to throw that in my notes. I think that, that will warrant another, that's sort of the, can you top this for stylistic yeah. departures? You know, well, I think that should be your, that should be like, you know, your, 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 your you know, your goal. Yeah. It's going to be like, but I'm sure there's a ton of bands like that. We've been accused of that though. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we, 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 we had five guys in the band and a DJ. So we're always trying to hear different sounds. But I think that's a perfect example of a band fanning over the producers so much that they never even could even, they couldn't even say anything. Yeah. You know, I've met the B fifty twos. They're very laid back and they're they're, they're very pleasant kind. Not very yeah. you know not super outgoing like you would think they'd be. So I bet they were just under David Byrne's spell, and you, I don't think they had any input on that song. You know well, what I mean? Just what, you could tell. What I think I read was that they were turned off and it's hard to say they because there's four individuals or five individuals and i'm sure they all have slightly different opinions but they were sick of being of hearing what they were from other people you guys are the fun silly people that do fun silly songs that we can party to and we there's something with your singer it's it's still 1980 so we're not quite sure what gay is but he's definitely a rare (laughs) and unusual person some i can't put my finger on it but there's something about that guy um and and I think they were like, we're not, we're what do you mean? We're 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 individuals. We're whatever the hell we feel like being, and whatever yeah. you say we are, we're gonna go be whatever. We're, it's always a bad idea when a band is is making a record based on what they want it to not be, as opposed to what yeah, they no. want it to be. And that's why, believe me, there will be a whole episode someday on all the hair metal bands records that came out in 1993. Oh, I'd love to hear that. The, the I contrarian know. stage. I know. Yeah, but also, the B-52s also, excuse me, come from a punk rock background. Yeah. So they were definitely kicking against the pricks then. You know what I mean? How yep. dare you tell us who we are? We're punk rock. So there's probably some weird punk rock ethic or ethos that they subscribe to mm-hmm. that, that wasn't necessarily organic to who they were and who they had become. You know, yeah, for sure. That's right. And then when they saw it sell five copies, they're like, hmm. Got it. Kind of yeah. fun making money. Maybe this resentment for the audience thing isn't working for us. You know, yeah, let's yeah, try yeah. and go back and please. Maybe people. we should keep our total contempt for everyone in the audience to ourselves. <laughs> okay. Maybe we should not play Rock Lobster first. Everybody <laughs> fuck off and get this out of the way. <laughs> well, everything the B fifty do the B fifty twos were refusing to do and be in January of nineteen eighty two is everything the waitresses were more than happy to be. Ah! And this, uh, I have no doubt, it was uh, was a big smash on K-Rock before crossing over to a wider audience. You're so much different. I might get you.
still so fun after all these years. Such a great song. And the bass player in that band does not get enough credit. Hmm. And you know the song Christmas Rapping, of course, the, uh, the oh, yeah. song Christmas Rapping. So good. The bass in that, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, oh, you mean you forgot cranberries too? Bump, 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 bump. The, the, the bass player, the groove in that is so funky on that song. Uh, I know what boys like. And that might be the quintessential early 80s K-Rock phenom, phenom song right there. That's the aesthetic. That's the Josie Cotton. That was the Fast Times of Ridgemont High. It was soon to come. That was just that there's so much wrapped up in that song that has I had a visceral reaction to it in terms of K-Rock. You know what I thought upon re-listening to it is there's a lot of stuff that you hear from the 80s and you either go oh that's you know that's that's 80s in the silly way or oh that's so of the time and then there's a lot of stuff that you might hear from the 80s and you say that's actually very cool that was cool then and it holds up but there's not always a lot of crossover like you might say the talking heads were a very cool thing that came out in the 80s and yeah they don't sound like they're from the 60s they don't sound like they're from 2022 but they they're not of the 80s that is as 80s that's what actual 80s cool sounded like like the coolest Absolutely. person at the Glendale Galleria, that's what that song is. Absolutely. And, and today, it still sounds cool. We yeah. do a lot of these where you hear the production and you're like, oh, and it's thin, and it's very, and it would never, it's just not cool anymore. Mm -hmm. The attitude in that song, it just exudes attitude, not only in the lyrical content, just the feel, the delivery of her voice. Mm -hmm. You know, that sucker. I know. It's just so 80s and rad. I love that song. There's a very good chance she cut that vocal while chewing bubblegum. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Yeah. You know? I hope, I, in, in my heart, she did. Uh, in duh, I, can, I don't know, from January, February of 1982, Huey Lewis and the News released their second album and can i tell you this uh did well peaked at number seven on the chart um i forgot that this song is by huey lewis and the news because i just don't associate it with them i don't think in a lot of ways it really sounds like them now working for a living is one of the singles off of this which is a, a prototypical may have been the literal prototype for all of the sport stuff that came after it but i think the bigger hit was a track that was written by Mutt Lang. Wow. Yep. Do You Believe in Love was written by Mutt Lang? That is exactly right. You're kidding me. Yeah. Y you know what? There's such amazing vocals in that. Mm -hmm. All the backing vocals. And when you think of Mutt Lang, you think of backing vocals. Think mm -hmm. of Def Leppard. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? All the great hysteria back, all these layers of vocals. And Do You Believe in Love, as we're going to hear, mm -hmm. has all these amazing backing vocals. We're working for a living. Right. Doesn't really, you know? No, 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 no. Did yeah. he produce the record or did he, did he just write the song? I do not believe. No, it was produced by Huey Lewis in the news. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. They're like, hey, Mutt, this production's not your thing, all right, man? You stick to the song right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got the production. <laughs> we're the news. Yeah, call me when you got a hook. <laughs> Our drummer has had a four track for years. <laughs> All right, so to refresh everyone's memory.
Oh, so nice. The ver- the, that the, is such a great song. The chorus is not a Huey Lewis chorus. The verses are. No. The, ver- the verses are. Yeah, the verses are. Yeah. And you can hear the chorus. It, it's got all these layers of vocals, but it sounds like one voice. But yeah. you can't pull Huey's out of there. No. Because there's probably 50 voices in there, and it's tripled and uh, quadruple tracked. But it sounds like a chorus of angels singing Do You Believe in Love? And it's such a great song. I remember it sticking out like a sore thumb in the early 80s when it came out. Yeah. Because like it had like a doo-wop feel to it and it was very classic rock and roll. And mind you, 81, 82, there was not a lot of classic rock and roll. Yeah, Jackson Brown snuck through or like, you know, The Boss, but like, you know, in terms of pop radio, a song like this didn't stand a chance. But a perfect song like this one is going to go top 10. You know what it is? I was trying to place it it's it's not a ripoff, but it's virtually identical to "Who Loves You" by Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. Boy, that's good. Absolutely, same feel. Yeah. Do you do you believe? Yeah, absolutely. And, and let's don't forget, MTV was coming around, and Huey Lewis was not uh, hard to look at. You know, so there was a lot going on there. I remember seeing this video, and they had a bunch of charm in the band. They were fun. They made these fun videos. Yeah. Um, so I think that served them as well too. Uh, I don't know how many people consider Hanoi Rocks essential artists from the early 80s. They were not. Come on. I know. You know we're talking to I them. I know. You know we're talking to them. But at this point, I don't even think they were being distributed outside of, like, Finland. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they might have been in Malmo and Finland, and that was it. <laughs> but they already, I, I, feel, I feel like it was only uh, last year that we were talking about what Bangkok shocks Saigon shakes Hanoi rocks. One of the great album titles of, and, and sticking with that theme, um, the second album was called Oriental Beat. It was a different time. And the most noteworthy track, as far as I can tell, was this song entitled Motorvaten. Oh yeah, I could but listen. What to- Lang could have just produced that track? You know, they would have been uh, they would have been business. Yeah. You know what sounds weird about that, Tony? It sounds really dated. Yeah, uh, like like they missed the seventies glam rock boat. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And that that genre was limping into the early eighties. And yep. Hanoi Rocks might have been really good at what they did. They looked great. Michael Monroe, Filthy McNasty. You know, uh, it's so many great guys in the band. They look great. Uh, Razzle, rest in peace. But it just, it didn't feel fresh then. Because I think we had such a, a, uh, we had such a a glam rock sort of burnout period, you know, and it took a while for that to sort of heat up again. Yeah. And the production didn't help. It was, it probably wasn't going to work anyway. I think the band for a while sort of disowned the record because I think it was it's a one good that, song though. It's, it's a really good song. Good, it's, yeah. No, they're fun. They're fun. Um, they had very punchy, very dynamic stuff, but I think it may have been a case of where they were sort of assigned a producer and they like went in one day and recorded the tracks and showed up the next morning and someone said, here's your album. And yeah. 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 The drums are very, like very thin yeah. and they sound very like this compressed. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, it they probably had a week to get in there. I mean, there weren't budgets back then. And that was an independent label, probably like you said, out of Finland. Mm-hmm. You know, there just wasn't a lot of like, 
it wasn't let's go and do record plant for six months and make a record. You know, they, they just didn't have that, That's unfortunately, because right. they deserved it. Um, that's sort of it for January of 82. Shalimar put out their last record with their original lineup for any Jody Watley super fans. Was, was that, uh, uh what's, what's the name of that single? Um, a night to remember. Uh, no, that's not the one. Uh, uh, can't remember. Can't remember. Go ahead. I mean, I'll, I'll do it. I, I was oh, dead giveaway, dead giveaway by Shalimar. You're just a dead giveaway. That was, uh, that was after 82, huh? Um, I, it was the last album with the original lineup. Gotcha, gotcha. So. I thought Jody Watley was in Dead, uh, the Dead Giveaway single, which I think was 83, but I, uh, I stand corrected. Chalamar, if, if, for, again, for the Jody Watley super fans out there, I'm sure I don't need to remind you what the last original lineup album of Chalamar <laughs> sounded like. Moving into, things started heating up in February of 1982. Um, right. Recorded more or less live to tape, I think the uh, incredibly influential, incredibly well-regarded, self-titled debut album from Bad Brains. Ah, the uh, the what's it called the Roar cassette, right? The uh, the um, what what's what's the title of it? I tell you. It is technically self-titled, but it's that it's that oh. yellow copy, that yellow yeah, yellow. Yeah. Co- everybody, you've seen the T-shirt, you know. Yeah. Right, right. It's got pay to come on it. And yeah, let's just do a little bit of pay to come so everybody knows what we're what we're talking about. I mean, talk about ripping a hole in the sky that that particular cassette i mean you know four dreads from washington dc playing hardcore punk rock doing it the best and their live shows which i've only seen like video of i was too young back then certainly they did a lot of shows on the east coast he, he would do a backflip on stage right before the first downbeat of the drums and it was some of the most theatrical dramatic live i mean you know you see bands like the Deftones and Rage Against the Machine, you can see exactly where they got some of their live sort of uh, aesthetic from. And it's this band right here, Bad Brains. I mean, Bad Brains should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, they really should be. Yeah, it, definitely as somebody who came to it very, very lately, uh, late, um, the hardcore thing, I, I just think it, it had to be experienced in the flesh. Mm-hmm. Like, <clears throat> if you didn't see that band live, you at least needed to see the imitators to understand okay. just how much better they were at it than everyone else. Because to me, as a musical artifact, I'd be very, very curious to know. <clears throat> Every time I say, nobody's listening to blah, 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 that genre anymore, uh, somebody writes to me and says, my 15-year-old kid listens to nothing but fill in <laughs> the blank. Right. I would really right. be curious to know not how many 15-year-old kids own Bad Brains t-shirts. How many 15-year-old kids really just like to kick back and put their heels up and <laughs> and listen to that first Bad Brains album after a long, hard day on the playground? Yeah, I don't know. But I, I would I be wrong. I'm sure I'd be wrong. Well, I only say this because, you know, look, they, they're not making uh, new um, legendary hardcore punk rock bands. True. There's, so there's only so many of them. If you're into punk rock. Yeah. And you might find punk rock from... Machine Gun Kelly, 
That might be your intro to punk rock, but you're going to damn well go back and find uh, where the genesis is. And you go back, you go find, you find you know, Sex Pistols, you're going to find you know, New York Dolls, Ramones. It's good. You're going to find your way to uh, Bad Brains. You're going to find your way to Black Flag, you know, Misfits. So I don't think it's such a, a stretch to say that 15, 16-year-olds would find Bad Brains, but you're going to go on a deeper dive than your average uh, person who gets turned on a punk rock from MGK. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, elsewhere in February of 1982, speaking of seminal hardcore acts, the Oak Ridge Boys were on to like their. <laughs> oh my God. With Delilah? We're on to like, we're on to like their 35th album. And I wouldn't bring it up except for the fact that this was definitely, I think this was a top 10 pop single in February of In case Yakety Yak was a little too hardcore for you. Oh, my God. You, you can't tell me that was a top 10 song in 82. You cannot. And it seemed like they released the record, like you said. I think we've <laughs> talked about them. Yeah, I know. I believe we have. Six yeah. times in 81, you know. Bobby, uh, Bobby Sue was the seventh album by the Oak Ridge Boys. Its title song was a number one country hit and a number 12 hit on the Hot wow. 100. That is huge. And let me compare that to uh, you know, Sugar Ray's When It's Over. Most yeah. people know that song, right? Yes. When It's Over. That got to number 13. So Bobby Sue is a bigger song in the history of the uh, Billboard Annals than When It's Over. So I <laughs> have just burned my own self on that. I like your band way better than the Oak Ridge Boys. Thank there, you. There, I so, said you know what's crazy? Though? We were just talking about how that there was no room for that sort of middle-of-the-road American sort of 12-bar blues, like, you know, a classic rock style. And there comes Bobby Sue. Coming right down memory lane. Oh, there was. There was so much stuff here that was just sort of like almost worthy of a mention, but not really. But Alabama is putting out yeah. records that are doing okay. Bonnie Raitt, if people want to go check mm -hmm. this out. The Bonnie Raitt single from February of 1982 is pretty good. Bonnie Raitt, if that's your mm -hmm. if that's your sort of thing. You know, there was... I just can't believe that was on pop radio next to like, you know... Um... I Duran Duran or so, you know, I just, I, I would love to go through a billboard. I, I'm going to do that when I get off the, yeah. the phone here, go look at billboard, like, and look at the top hundred in, 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 you know, February of 82. It'd be fascinating to see the, the diversity, even though the nineties are kind of looked at as like a, a, a decade of diversity because of a lot of blues and all that. Yeah. I mean, look, look at, look what was rocking right there. I mean, insane. Well, here, let's skip ahead to, there's a couple of songs that I don't think did a ton of damage. Well, the, okay. The first one was, I don't know if this was a big hit, although it would later be, like three years later, included on the soundtrack to the first Ghostbusters movie. Um, it, it wasn't as if people weren't doing the accessible mass appeal pop 80s thing by 1982. They were. Uh, Thompson Twins weren't quite up to hold me now, but at the exact same time that the Oak Ridge Boys released Bobby Sue, Thompson Twins were doing this. Crazy. That's solid. Uh, that's a great song. It's fun. And, uh, by the way, the K Rock phenomenon played it all day long. Yep. How funny, though, if you're the Oak Ridge Boys and you're hearing. Uh, what are these Thompson twins out of the UK? This is the new, like, you you yeah. know you're on your last breath. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Duran Duran come around, Thompson Twins, you know. know. What do you uh, mean? Those guys don't even look like they're related. (laughs) Where's the beards, man? Yeah, exactly. And, and. They could could hear the death knell. They could hear it, you know. If they didn't get it from Thompson Twins, they sure as heck should have gotten it from Haircut 100, who released their debut album in February of 82. That's not the best chorus I've ever heard, but there's not a whole lot that are a whole lot better. It is way up there, and it still sounds fresh. Yeah, and you know Nick Hayward and Haircut One Hundred, they just uh, they looked cool. Definitely benefited off the MTV presence as well. Yeah, and um, you know songs, some songs just like are timeless. Like you know you can go with some style council, my everlasting my Everla- <laughs> everlasting moods. Like this song. You know, uh, a lot of Elvis Costello songs are just timeless. You could throw that in today, and you'd be like, oh, that's just some cool indie arcade fire type band. You know what yeah. I mean? They really, it's just such a cool song. Perfectly written. It really, really is. And you could say just about all the same things about, mentioned XTC was coming. Now, I am a later era XTC guy. I've always had a little bit of trouble with the first, oh, I don't know, 85% of their career. <laughs> And they're kind of just two different bands in that. I mean, they're very much the same vocally. They're unmistakable, but uh, it just calmed down so much. It was so much more um, as, as as sort of cloying and saccharine as you might accuse even their later era stuff of being. I think you would say it was, they had that in spades earlier, but... I don't know where you are on XTC. I guess a lot of the people who have been following, it's different. When, when when you see where the band ends up working backwards, that's a really different experience than seeing them and being along for the ride. I guess many people consider this album, English Settlement, their best album. I am a Skylarking guy all the way. Yeah. I think Mary Simpleton is one of the best songs ever written. Oh, my God. You know what I mean? So I, I'm a later XTC yeah, fan as well. Right. I was there in the early, and I liked a lot of, I liked a lot of the early songs, but... Census work over time, et cetera. But I mean, Mary Simpleton and, and King for a Day. I mean, oh. I know they were the singles, but they're just perfect songs. And the fact that Andy Partridge doesn't even sing King for a Day. Uh, the other guy, I can't remember that guy's name right now. Colin Molding? Yes, Colin, Colin Molding or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Two great songwriters, two great singers in a band. Uh, obviously, they were hampered by uh, Andy's uh, lack of being able to, well, his agoraphobia. Yeah. He, he had a breakdown, and then they weren't able to tour for like eight years. So it took a bit of a break, a huge break. But no, I I, I think Mary Simpleton is a perfectly written. You know what? Yeah, I, I like the economy of music. Like Heart of the Matter by Don Henley, a perfectly written song to me. It's just every lyric, every everything is perfect for the bridge. When when you go through a song and you're just flowing through it, and there's never anything jarring and it's perfectly written. I appreciate that so much. And that is what, you know, XTC does to me in the later years, like we were talking about. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You mentioned senses working overtime and that was the standout track from the album English settlement released in February of 1982.
I would hope that everybody who considers themselves a massive, massive, massive Beatles fan has at least given XTC a try. Because it's if you like one, you're not going to necessarily like the other. But when you talk about really purely Beatlesque bands, I can't think of a more really great Beatlesque band than than XTC. And I did the, the never for fairly obvious reasons had that breakthrough in America. They don't have that one song that resonated. No. I don't. I don't. Even, I mean, that might be it. Well, I think Mary Simpleton was a top 20 hit for them or something, yeah. but I think they were also so English. They were yeah. such an English band that, yeah. you know, it's kind of like why Blur wasn't so big here. They yes. talked about such English things and like they were so laddie and, you know, their references were all English and they were proud to wear the, the Union Jack on their sleeve. They had no problem doing that. And I agree with you on the Beatles thing. What I love about the Beatles is what they did perfectly. And Jellyfish does it well, too. Another band that kind of was able to integrate the genius of the Beatles, but still have a unique presence of their own. But I don't think anybody did, did it better than XTC. We're able to be influenced by the Beatles. All that is great about the Beatles. Like I'm not talking about taking like the, you know, the, the psychedelic, like, you know, experimental Beatles. I mean, that core that core essence of the Beatles that, that made that, those wheels turn, XTC really honed in on that. It really affected Andy Partridge. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just the, the melodic core of the Beatles. And, and not for three songs, not for an album or two. XTC have like 20 albums. And I might like some better than others, but there's something worth experiencing on anything that they've ever put out. Right. They're always interesting guitar changes they make. And as a car guitar player, Andy's very under underrated uh, to me. Uh, no, I know I mean? Yeah, I did a guitar pod on my Patreon and I actually gave him kind of a little honorable mention in the beginning. His guitar oh, solo on that's really super super girl. It's the same thing to me as Prince. Whenever and again Prince just does some crazy run just to remind you that I could do this all day if I chose to. <laughs> Right. I can do raked arpeggios, but I choose to have taste. You know what I mean? Okay. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. But yeah, but he, but he will take you to that D7th or that F9th that most people won't, but the Beatles did, and, and he, he studies at that, that playbook. But it's also dangerous if you're not a talented songwriter to study at the Beatles playbook. Yeah. Andy Parcher didn't have that problem. No. So, uh, David Byrne has his music to go with the theatrical thing. So, too... In February of 1982, does David Bowie. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with his version of Ball's Hymn from the theatrical staging of um, Bertolt Brecht's Ball. Not. No? <laughs> I was waiting for Let's Dance. <laughs> <laughs> well, just here, this is what David Bowie's doing. I feel like I have to mention him. Yeah, of course. So through hospital, cathedral, whiskey bar, bar kept <laughs> moving onwards and just let things go. When Baal's tired boys, Baal cannot fall far, he will have his sky down there below. Hey, you get the idea. When the cokes run out and you're just like, uh, you know, you're sick of pop music and you're like, you're like, is there anything else? Yep. There, yes, there's this. And then we'll get you back to doing what you do well, David. Yeah, that's right. Meanwhile, his former Berlin palling around pal Lou Reed releases a record that I gather was very well received and um, very well regarded. It seemed to be the consensus that... The open question on Lou Reed was, could he ever scale the same heights that he had with the Velvet Underground? Um, I think 
retroactively. We say, yes, he sure did a couple times working with David Bowie in the 70s, but um, it seems that the critics uh, were outdoing one another with fawning praise over a Lou Reed album released in 1982 called The Blue Mask. And it seems that the standout track from that was a work entitled The Gun. That he used it. Nine millimeter Browning. Let's see what it could do. He'll point it at your mouth. Says that he'll blow your brains out. Don't you mess with me. Carrying a gun. Lou Reed's back, baby. I'm sorry, man. You know, I, I reserve the right not to like something just yeah. because everybody else does. You know yeah. what I mean? And, and by the way, who else likes that? Robert. I mean, who else? Does? Robert Christgau. Yeah, but you know, it, that's it's like it's like when REM released a record. You had to like it, Bob Dylan. You have to like it. If you don't like it, you just don't get it. You're not cool. And you don't understand music. You know, music is so subjective. It's hard to like. I, I don't know. Like you, I've never heard that song. Mm-hmm. You know, for obvious reasons. Yeah. You know. But I, I, what, what is your thoughts on that, Tully? Don't leave me here hanging. Oh, I think it's absolute garbage. I think it's total pretentious nonsense. Uh, musically, it's Sweet Jane, which was already sort of trite 15 years earlier. Uh, I think believing that Lou Reed was some sort of like street tough or at least lived in an apartment next to one was comical by the 1980s. You know, maybe he did see some rough shit while he was taking the train uptown to buy heroin in 1968. But, um, it's the, it's the pulp thing. One of the great, great rock lyrics is the song common people by pulp and it's a story song as so many of the songs are and it's the it's it, the singer meets a girl at college and he's poor and she's rich and she wants to slum and she says i want to live like common people i want to see what common people do and he says in the song <clears throat> you'll never understand because if you called your dad he could stop it all lou nice. reed lou reed could have always gone back to that town where nobody understood lou reed Mm-hmm. And he could have fucking gotten a job at the hardware store and he couldn't have got away from all of the street urchins that he romanticized. And I think it's, I think it's, it's disingenuous. And, uh, aside from the fact that it's just completely unlistenable and you know how like Jerry Lewis was supposedly this big genius to the French. I think <laughs> Lou Reed is that to the Germans and I can kind of weirdly understand why. And I think Germany, you can have it. Right. I'm so glad I asked you. I'm so glad I asked you that. You just articulated my thoughts perfectly. Let me ask you something. Do you think Lou Reed believed his own bullshit? Yeah, I do. I absolutely positively. Do you? you? Oh, yeah. Do you think he was that disconnected? Or was he just like, shit, I don't know what this is either, but but I'm just going to keep doing it because people dig it or some people dig it or the principals dig it. Yeah. So my, I had a couple of friends who worked with the artist Julian Schnabel 
who was a big uh, under, sure. underground New York artist, cool sure. downtown dude, 70s into a the 80s. Agent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basquiat. Bon Vivant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Man about town. <clears throat> and he was friends with Lou Reed. And so they, they, they rubbed shoulders with him quite a bit and said they went to his apartment and everything was still leather and leopard print like it had been when he you know this was right. this was the late 90s and it looked like he decorated he probably took the advance from the gun and decorated and hadn't <laughs> right yeah so he believed it then you, you think he was he, that, this was authentic to himself the ring yeah i don't know i you know i watched there's a velvet underground documentary on uh, Apple TV, and I really, I, I can listen to the first Velvet Underground record top to bottom. I might oh, even, too. I might me even, too. I might even choose to. I just think that almost as he got further and further away from what made them good to me, his legend grew. Right, I know exactly what you're saying. I, I just, I'm confused because the late '80s, he came out with a song called Suzanne. Yeah, I know. I think, well. It is such a far cry from this in '82. It's like it's like a pop song, and, and, and like it's like it's and it's kind of a cheesy pop song. Now the guy Lou Reed doing the gun in '82 would have never done that in '88 or '89, whenever that song is released. So I don't know if he believed in that. Is is what I my question is like he took such a hard or he sold out completely. I don't know what it is, but it's such a it's such an aesthetic departure that I almost believe he didn't believe his own shit then because he was certainly doubting himself in '89 by. Singing, you do what you want to do. You do what you can, but I love you, Suzanne. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like a John. It's like a Southside Johnny and the and the Asbury Jukes. With all due respect to Southside Johnny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, oh, no disrespect to any of the Asbury Jukes who may be listening. Absolutely. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so here's a here's a, a a Lou Reed adjacent kind of guy. If you if you pull up your this is you know um your your Lou Reed radio station on um, on Spotify, I wouldn't be surprised if at a certain point they start mixing in some Tom Waits. Oh yeah. Here's what while Lou Reed is doing that, Tom Waits makes a bunch of music for a Coppola movie. Might be Scorsese, but I think it's Coppola. One from the heart. Yeah, I think it's Coppola. I think you're right. Yeah, and uh, and and he 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 sings some of the songs, and Crystal Gale, don't it make my brown eyes blue? Crystal Gale sings some of the others, and then there's a couple of duets, including the title track. This one's from the shadows on the wall look like a railroad track. I wish I'd had a clip with a little bit, with all due respect to Crystal Gale, a little bit more Tom Waits in it, but I, I, I can't get angry at that. It's such an obvious pairing vocally, those two, huh? I mean, yeah. Crystal Gale's got one of the most voices of all time. She's saying backup for Neil Young. And yeah. 
Tom Waits is Tom Waits, you know. But it's sad. There's something very cool going on in there. Yeah. It's a push and pull. I love the sax just thrown through there. Or the uh, the trumpet, if you will. Is that a trumpet or a sax? Uh, a little Chet Baker. A little Chet Baker going on there. I have a huge blind spot when it comes to brass. You would know. You would know better than <laughs> no, I. I can't even tell by looking so, at him. It feels like an it feels like a love boat. You know, in love boat, they'd be doing the, uh, like, the, a, a, a dancing scene. It feels like the background movie music to, like, a love boat scene where they were talking about, I'll always love you forever. I'm glad we went on this cruise. And when we um, get home, I'll be different. You yeah, when saying? the divorced couple decided to give it one more shot and exactly, Isaac exactly, slips something exactly. in somebody's drink. And next thing you know, <laughs> Captain Steubing's looking on it approvingly. Yeah. Right. And Julie and Captain Steubing are sitting there looking at It feels like the music, <laughs> the background for that. You know what I mean? Which is, which is nothing but love. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Topical references about topical music. Uh, we'll do... Wait, we're so hip. Yeah, I know. So it's hip. crazy. <laughs> um, okay, so I'll do one more. I was going to go up to February because it's currently February of 2022. Feb... I'm sorry, March. I was going to go up to March appears to be back to sort of business as usual. There's lots of stuff to talk to, uh, talk about yeah, from the second quarter. So yeah, they'd be back to exactly get, get, yeah. get, getting business going again. Right, right, right. But, uh, finally, last but not least, February, 1982, Willie Nelson tried to talk Merle Haggard into duetting or something on always on my mind. Merle Haggard was like, why the hell would anybody do that? So Willie said, <laughs> fine, I'll do it on my next solo album and uh, the estate somewhere, the estate of Merle Haggard cries. Mm, mm, yeah. Mm. You were always on my mind. And maybe I, I guess I never told you. You know, he had so much authenticity just emanating from his voice and emanating from his soul. Um, the the keyboards on that could really... Uh, it's They tie it to the era in which it came out, but it's authentic because it's Willie Nelson singing over those keyboards. I... I almost cry every time I hear that song. If you yeah. listen to it, it's such a beautiful performance. And when you make it, when you, you take a cover song that everybody knows, especially by an artist that everybody reveres, yep. and you make it better, I mean, that, that that's an incredible, I mean, I know it's a subjective point, but I just think that this is the most beautiful version of that song ever. And it feels like a song that Willie Nelson could have wrote himself. Yeah. Uh, he, he, you know, it feels like something just that was just in his arsenal. And the delivery is so beautiful, and there's such an ache and a plaintiveness in his voice. And it's so effective on this song in particular. I never get sick of hearing that. I never get sick of hearing him singing this. And while this man is alive in this world, the world is a better place, man. You know? So you'll take his version over Pet Shop Boys. But I love that version too. I know. I I think it might be the song. It might be really, really good. I think they're both better the than Pet the Elvis version. Well, I, I definitely agree with that. And yeah. I love the Elvis version, but and there's right. a lot of schlock to the Elvis version. Yeah. You know? But the Pet Shop Boys version... For some reason, they took a complete right turn with the song. It's also able to feel that essence of what made that song. You're always on my mind. You know, if you keep, you always repeat that over and over. The economy of words, man, but just gives such a a, a cornucopia of feeling. You know. Yep. 
Well, that's everything I've got. Unless people, again, people in their own time are more than welcome to check out uh, Van Morrison's beautiful vision. Orange Juice is like a Scottish indie rock band that I'm kind of partial to. They put out their first album, Felt. Mm Mm-hmm. Or, or, Orange Juice, I believe, was Edwin Collins' first band. Who had the "I Never Met a Girl Like You" before. Just a little little context of the uh, Orange Juice. It's pretty listenable. It's pretty listenable stuff. But yeah, uh, good that stuff. that that will that will suffice for now, Mark. As always, we thank you for your time and your insight. Where are you, where are you heading next? I will be going down. I'll be on the Beach Boys cruise. Beach oh. Boys cruise at the end of March. That's indeed. Fun. Beast Boys, Temptations, The Monkees, and uh, Joe Piscopo, Jersey's own Joe Piscopo. Wow. And, uh, and Yacht Yacht Rock Review will be on it, which I don't know if you've ever seen them. They're the greatest Yacht Rock tribute band around. So I'll be selling the seas my contemporaries, the Beach Boys and the Temptations and the Monkees. Wow. Joe Piscopo. Uh, I'm, I'm from Jersey. He's from Jersey. I know. That's why so I said Jersey's own. So yeah. I'll be the boy toy on that cruise. So we're looking forward to that one. <laughs> Enjoy it. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next time. Thank you, brother. <laughs>